continuing in the, the gospel of Mark today. Uh, we, just, we just got into this series last week, and so we have accomplished, we've, we've made it through the first 11 verses, and so much has happened in those 11 verses because the gospel of Mark, it just moves so fast compared to the other gospels. So we got our bearings last week. We talked about how of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark was the first one written and the first one to circulate. And it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by a man named John Mark. And we see his, his life pop up in the book of Acts when we studied that book. But we also see that Peter refers to John Mark as his own son. They have this special bond, a special relationship. And we believe that it is the apostle Peter who gave his eyewitness account to John Mark to write down. And that's what we're reading. And I, I argued last week that I think that's one of the reasons that this gospel is so efficient and so quick. It's because Peter is the one telling the story here, and, and John Mark is writing it down. But Peter is just the type of guy that if, if he were telling you the gospel of Jesus and explaining to you this happened and then this happened and this happened, it's no wonder, just according to his personality that we see in Scripture, that this would be so action-packed and straightforward and to the point. That is how the, the gospel of Mark uh, is laid out for us. But we, we talked about also another reason why we believe it, it's so efficient. It's because the Christians who first received this letter were first century Christians in Rome. And they were living under just a, the, just a brutal, brutal reign of Emperor Nero. And so Christians are being killed for what they believe. They're being slaughtered in the streets. They're being killed in the Colosseum for entertainment. And we believe that Nero was actually uh, using Christians in that day as kind of a scapegoat or a way to distract the, the communities there in Rome away from some of his political mishaps and things like that. But he, he just despised Christians and took advantage of that hatred for them in a way that would uh, advance his political career and his reign of power. And so the gospel of Mark is one that would circulate and say to Christians, okay, let's study the life of Jesus. Here's what you need to know. This, 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 and this. And so the gospel of, of Mark, it just quickly informs us as, uh, as to a synopsis of the life of Jesus. And so it doesn't start as the other gospels start. We don't get any nativity story, no, no origin story of Jesus. It doesn't start with a genealogy. Rather, it just jumps right to the prophesied forerunner of Christ. And that's this Elijah-esque prophet that comes upon the scene there the, and acts as the forerunner to the coming king. And John the Baptist is that forerunner. And so just like any forerunner would, would behave in that day, the, the forerunner, if a king was coming to town, the forerunner would get there months in advance, literally straighten the paths, literally improve the roads to that town because the king was going to be coming. The forerunner would literally show up into a community and make sure everyone was at their best. He cleaned up their act because the king is on his way. And so John the Baptist did this as prophesied, but he did this with a, with a message of confession and repentance and baptism. And we talked about last week how, how that, that message and activity of baptism would have been provocative. 
I mean, for a Jew to get baptized, why would a Jew get baptized? Why would a Jew confess, repent, and get baptized in the Jordan River with John the Baptist? If someone's going to get baptized, their category for baptism, we remember, is when a Gentile, someone who wasn't ethnically Jew, when they would convert to Judaism, they would get baptized. But for a Jew to get baptized, this was a a message that just sent shockwaves through Judea. It was offensive to them. So the high priest, they would send their, their priests out to investigate and to criticize. And, and so we remember this, this ministry of John the Baptist, we, we, can't, we can't just underestimate how popular and how widely known that it was. When archaeologists research and, and find writings from the first century in this part of the world, John the Baptist's name pops up more than Jesus. I mean, his, his ministry was incredibly, incredibly popular. And so John the Baptist, we saw last week, he baptizes Jesus, and Jesus is identified as the Messiah, and after his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and we hear a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This all happens in 11 verses. That's how fast the gospel of Mark is moving. And so in comparison to the other gospels, like when you're reading in Matthew or Luke, it takes three chapters to get to this point in which Jesus has been baptized and he is beginning his earthly ministry. It takes them three chapters to get to this point. But with Mark, he's like, no, I just need 11 verses and we'll be there. He's been hanging out with Peter. Straightforward, to the point, here we go. This is the immediately gospel. It's happening happening rapidly. We talked about last week how that, that word immediately literally shows up in the text like 42 different times. This happened, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened. And it, it's just right to the action in the gospel of Mark. And so maybe for the, the sake of, of conversation this morning, maybe, maybe we, could, we could think this way. It, act as if you never read the gospel before. You've learned this information, this 11 verses of information. Jesus has been baptized. He's, he's been identified as the Messiah. He's getting ready to start his earthly ministry. What would you expect to immediately happen next? Well, I bet you it's not this. Let's pick up in verses 12 and 13, the temptation of Jesus. It says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's all we're covering today. <laughs> I thought it would be worth our while to just, to just think about the temptation of Jesus. Now, what jumps off the page at me is how the Spirit interacts in the life of Jesus. It says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That word drove, the, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Now, if you're reading the account of the temptation of Jesus in Matthew or in Luke, they don't use that word drove. They, they use the word led. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. It just sounds a little less urgent, less forceful. But here, Mark uses the word drove, an intense word. He, he impelled, maybe that's the, the, the word that's used in your translation. Drove Jesus or impelled Jesus out into the wilderness. And so that, that Greek word that's used in, in 
Matthew and Luke led. It's the Greek word anago. Now I always preface any, any, anytime I talk about the Greek language, I am not a Greek scholar, but I can read. And I love to read Greek scholars. And I love to read commentary. But that's not the same Greek word that's used here in Mark. The Greek word here is ekbalo. Now, to give you an example of how that word is used, when you read about Jesus casting out a demon, that's the word that's used, to cast out. And so that's what's being communicated to us. The, the Spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness. Immediately, that's the first thing that happens once Jesus is filled with the Spirit. He is cast out into the wilderness. Why? What, what are we learning here? Why would, why would the Spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness? I mean, isn't the Father, well, pleased with the Son? Why drive him to the wilderness? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week. Remember the, the, that wilderness language, it means something. It means something in the Bible. God does so much in the wilderness. He interacts with his people in a very special way, often in the wilderness. We think about how God met with Moses. Where? In the wilderness. He, he ministered to Elijah. Where? In the wilderness. He, when, when he redeemed his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, where did he take them to interact with them? The wilderness. That wilderness language comes up again and again and again in Scripture, and it's coming up here, here in Mark. It's no wonder this is the first thing that happens. God is doing something special. And so he begins in the wilderness. He drove Jesus out into the wilderness to prepare him, to, to do something special, to get him ready. The wilderness is the perfect setting for the beginning of Jesus' ministry because it jives with redemptive history. Even the time frame that he stays out there jives with redemptive history. Jesus is out there for how long? 40 days. That's, that number pops up again and again and again in Scripture. It was considered a perfect number, a complete number. And so there are many things that happen in, in, in Scripture in 40 days or 40 years. How long were God's people wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. But before they were wandering in the wilderness, we know that Moses met with God in the wilderness. He met with God on Mount Sinai, and he fasted there for 40 days before God gave him the Ten Commandments. So God does all sorts of things in this time frame. And so, again, someone who grew up with the knowledge of the Old Testament especially would immediately recognize this is godly activity. God is doing something big here. He's taking his Messiah to the wilderness to prepare him to do something special. Well, what's, how, how's he going to do this? What is this experience that Jesus is going to have to be prepared in the wilderness? Moses, it was a burning bush, right, and communicated to him. Elijah was ministered to by ravens, we saw in, in the Old Testament. And so how is he going to prepare Jesus? Why, why cast him out into the wilderness? What activity is awaiting Jesus here? Well, of course, the temptation of Satan. <laughs> that, that, that catches us off guard, right? That God is sovereign over this activity. He, he drove him out into the wilderness specifically to allow him to be tested and tempted by Satan. This is, one of the, this is just one of many reasons I think it's so important that we don't peddle a version of the gospel that's all sunshine and daisies and, 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 and you know, self-help happiness. I mean, isn't there something familiar about Jesus as he, 
right when he gets going, he, he, he's coming off this mountaintop experience of being baptized. The, you know, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. He hears from God that he is well pleased with him. This mountaintop experience. Isn't there something familiar about a mountaintop experience followed up by some chaos? Isn't that kind of how it happens with a lot of us? I can't tell you how many times I've, I've sat down with new believers that are coming off a mountain mountaintop experience, excited about their faith, excited about Christianity, excited about being a part of the church. And it seems like just as soon as they get their talons, you know, dug into to Christ, to the Christian life, it's like they, they, they're, they're on this mountaintop experience and then they just fall all the way down the mountain. It's, this is like trouble and turmoil. Life gets more complicated after they become a Christian. It's like it's like the, 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 their life becomes more difficult having become a believer. And so maybe, maybe you know somebody that's had this experience, or maybe you've had this experience. Maybe that would describe how you felt after you became a believer. But you know who was having this experience? The first century Christians that are receiving this gospel in Rome. Here they are professing their faith. They're confessing their sins. They're being baptized. They're meeting together, praying for one another. They're a part of a Christian community for the first time in their lives. The church is exploding. It's doing amazing things. They're having all of these mountaintop experiences. And then Emperor Nero comes and, and kills all their friends and the family. They're, they're, they're being drug out into the streets and slaughtered into the Colosseum to be killed. It's chaos. It's just utter chaos. Can you, can you think of a time that would be any more tempting to do something wrong? Any more tempting to, to leave the faith, to abandon God? But here when they're reading about their Savior that they've committed their lives to, there's something familiar. He gets baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. God speaks to him, tells him he's, he's well pleased with his son. And then immediately he's driven out into the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan. Chaos, immediately, this Savior that they've committed their lives to, this is a guy I can relate to. This is a guy I can relate to. Jesus was not someone who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember, that's Hebrews 4.15. And so in their day, this was a message of extreme hope. Just 11 verses in, they get to verses 12 and 13, and this is a message of extreme hope because the experience of Christ immediately kind of feels like their experience as well. He's in the wilderness. He's not safe. He's with wild animals. To emphasize the chaos that is out there, it felt dangerous. Well, that's this life of being a believer for first century Christians in Rome, it felt dangerous. So any sort of message that would have been peddled there as, as like shallow happiness and self-help, like it just wouldn't have caught on. It wouldn't have been relevant. But the actual message of the gospel, that, that God is sovereign over every trial, God is sovereign over all of the suffering, well, that's something that would catch on. That's something that's relevant. God's Messiah was allowed to be tempted by Satan for 40 days Without food, we learn from the other Gospels, and angels were ministering to him, it says. So God, God was allowing, he was allowing these trials. He was allowing this time of testing, and he was sustaining his Christ. And so, again, for Christians then, 
what a relief it is to know that this is how God works. And for Christians today, what a relief it is to know that this is how God works. I mean, maybe you're in a season of time like that right now where you feel like you're just going from, from one trial to the next trial to the next trial. Well, when you read in Scripture, you're, you're comforted by the fact that God can work through that, that God does work through that. He uses that. He is sovereign over all of that. That brings me great comfort. That's, that's of great relevance to me because that's how life feels for me. That's how God prepares us and refines us. We don't learn anywhere in Scripture that God refines us by throwing us into a pile of pillows. But we do learn everywhere in Scripture that God refines us like gold is refined by fire. It builds character. He forms us and shapes us into who he wants us to be. And so that's why New Testament authors would speak of suffering in the context of joy. Because they know that's how God works. It's why New Testament authors would say things like this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He refines us as gold is refined in fire because he's perfecting us. That's how God works. And that's why we can have hope. In the midst of chaos, oh, there's purpose for this. There's a reason for this. He's going to work all of this for my good. That's the message of the Bible. So when Jesus was driven out into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan, we know that Jesus wasn't driven out there uh, to be tempted and to be molded in the, in the same way we are, right? We're, we're being shaped and refined because we are very imperfect and we have sin. But Jesus is perfect, he didn't need perfected like we need perfected. However, in his sinlessness, he still needed to fulfill all righteousness. He was perfectly righteous and, and perfectly sinless because he did the right things. He still needed to fulfill all righteousness, as scripture tells us. And that included battling temptation. And so God was sovereignly using this temptation by Satan, allowing it to happen, to solidify Jesus as the Christ, to make it certain. So now, Mark doesn't give us all of the details of this temptation like Matthew and Luke does. And so in Mark, it's just like he was, he was, he was driven out into the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, and, and, and continuously for 40 days. I believe that he was tempted continuously over all of that time in many different ways. But Matthew and Luke, they summarize three distinct ways in which Jesus was tempted. And I thought it would be at least worth our while to remember those, to remind ourselves of just how Satan tempted Jesus. Again, it makes him so relatable. We read those accounts in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 13. And we see the, the first of the three temptations. We remember Jesus was fasting out there. He's hungry. So what does Satan do? He says, if you are the Son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, the, the purpose of each one of these temptations, it works exactly the same. He's trying to tempt Jesus to question what God says. What had God just said to Jesus after his baptism? You are my son. 
You are who I, I am well pleased with, right? With you, I am well pleased. And so Satan, he wants to get Jesus to question what God has said. Well, if you are the son of God. Now, wait a second. He just said. God just said, you're my son. But Satan's like, well, if you are the son of God, you know, maybe turn these, uh, you know, turn these, turn these rocks into loaves of bread. Eat, eat something. Question God. I, I, again, this, is, this, makes, this makes Jesus so relatable to us. Because when you and I think about temptation that we deal with, I mean, it's often we deal with temptation the same way. Like, we're told from the book of Genesis to Revelation that God loves us. He loves us because he loves us. We, we learned that from the first chapter of the Bible to the last chapter of the Bible. And he loves us. He redeems us. He's given his son to die for us. But when life gets difficult, when things aren't going our way, when we're suffering through a, t a trial or being tempted, how are we tempted to think in those moments? Does God love me? When things aren't going the way I think they should... It, does, does God provide for me? Does, does he, is he pleased with me? Well, in those moments, we have to decide as believers, are we going to take God at his word? Or are we going to question God? And so when Jesus was tempted by Satan to turn those rocks into loaves of bread, he's like, I'm going to take God at his word. And so he quotes the Bible to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Of course, he's quoting Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. In other words, he's saying to, to Satan, hey, listen, there's, there's no if I'm the son of God. God told me I am his son with whom he is well pleased. And that's that. I don't need to test to see if that's true. He told me that's true. So I believe him. That's enough. You and I are to have that same posture when we face temptation. Well, the second temptation it, it was just accomplishing the same exact, exact thing, but in a different way. And so he, the second temptation that, that's told in, in Matthew and Luke is that Satan comes to Jesus and he says, well, hey, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And he explains to Jesus, because you know, you're, well, if you're the son of God, if you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, the, God's angel army will come down and swoop and save you, and everybody will witness that, and they'll know for sure you're the son of God. You can prove it that way. Test God by jumping off the temple, and everyone can know that you are the son of God. And how does Jesus respond? You shall not put the Lord God to the test. I'm not going to provoke God into some action. I'm going to take him at his word. I'm going to believe what he says. And so God says I'm his son. I don't need to test that. It's true because he said it. So again, this is often how we're, we're tempted. I, you know, honestly, I was thinking about this. I think this is kind of the way a, a lot of TV preachers and, and televangelists will manipulate people who watch their programs this way, they'll, they'll constantly, if you, if you listen to their message, especially when it comes to giving, they'll often manipulate insecure believers into giving money to God, and, and they, they convince them to do this or tempt them to do this by, by saying that, like, hey, God wants to bless you, and he does love you, but let him prove that. Sow a seed of a thousand dollars and let God prove his love for you, You'll re it'll return back to you in sevenfold. Like, do this, and God will do that. If you do this, 
you can, you can have God's love for you proven to you by the abundance that you receive in return. So they're playing on greed, first of all, but they're also playing on the fact that you don't really trust God to provide for you. So you need to do something to provoke him into action to prove his love for you and his provisions for you. Uh, or we could just take God at his word and then obey his word and be generous because he commanded us to. That's how we should be giving. You know, if we ever feel like we need to test God in order to find out if he loves us or, or wants to provide for us, if you feel like you've got to test God in a certain way, you've missed the gospel of Jesus entirely. You've missed it entirely if you feel like you've got to test God. But there's a third way that Satan tempts Jesus. He tempts Jesus to take a different path to, uh, to being the Messiah. He's saying, like, sure, you can, be, you can be the Messiah, but be the Messiah my way. All the kingdoms of the world will be yours if you just fall down and worship me. In other words, he's saying to Jesus, hey, I will refine you by throwing you into a pile of pillows. I'll give you everything anyone could ever want. All the kingdoms of the earth I can give to you. You can be head of all of them. You just need to bow down and worship me. You need to follow my will instead of God's will. Trust me instead of trusting God. My way instead of his way. It'll be easier, I promise. So, I mean, doesn't Je we just know that Jesus understands the temptation of, of worldliness, right? The temptation of disregarding God and taking the wide path. He dealt with that same temptation in his life. He's so relatable. And it's why Jesus would teach the way that he did. He would say, for what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus battled satanic temptation by taking God at his word. So he says, you shall love the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, is what he responds to Satan with. He responds with what God has said. And so this is how we are to respond. When we fall into trials and suffering and temptation, we get disoriented. We get confused. We get frustrated. We, we experience this wide array of emotions and we don't know what to do. You ever just get into to a, to a, a, just a rat's nest of, of problems in your life and you're just like, I don't even know what to think right now. You're tempted to go on all sorts of different directions. You're tempted to behave in ways that you would normally wouldn't. What are we supposed to do in those moments? Well, if we follow the example of Christ, fall back on what we do know. God tells the truth. What is his truth? It's his word. Fall back on, on, on the truth that we have that God does love us and will provide for us perfectly. Fall back on the truth that God is sovereign over whatever rat's nest you find yourself in, no matter what kind of problems you're dealing with, no matter how complicated, no matter, you can't see a way out of that mess. It doesn't matter. God is sovereign over all of those things. You can trust in that truth. Start there. That's what you're to think. That's what you're to say. Fall back on what you do know when you don't know. And so I, I think one of the most helpful ways, though, for us to think about the temptation of Christ is to look at the temptation of Christ through the lens of the Old Testament. We know another person who was tempted by Satan. It's one of the first things that happens in the Bible, right? In Genesis, we read about Adam and Eve in the garden. 
And we see that Adam is tempted by Satan. It's so helpful if you really want to appreciate what Jesus went through in the wilderness, if you really want to understand the magnitude of what Jesus accomplished in the desert when he was tempted by Satan, look at his temptation uh, from Satan through the lens of the temptation of Adam. And you know, the New Testament actually encourages us to do that. That's exactly how the New Testament encourages us to think about Jesus and his temptation. So when you read about Jesus in the New Testament, sometimes, like in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is actually described as the second Adam or the last Adam. And the reason is so that we will look at Jesus through the lens of what happened to Adam. Now, we all know the story of temptation with, with Adam and Eve in the garden. What was that temptation like? In, in the first Adam, he was tempted by Satan. Where was he? Was he in the wilderness? Was he in the desert? Was he fasting? No, he, he was in paradise. When, Adam, when the first Adam was tempted by Satan, he was in a lush garden. He was surrounded by food. He had a full stomach. He was surrounded by perfection. He was safe. He was secure. Yet he fell into temptation. He chose not to take God at his word. Well, the last Adam, Jesus, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He had no food. There were just rocks. He was tempted to turn him into loaves of bread, but he chose not to do that because he was going to take God at his word. He had an empty stomach. He felt like he was starving, but he trusted in God because he knew he was the son of God with whom the father was well pleased. The first Adam, in his situation, he even had companionship. He had Eve there. He had fellowship with Eve. He was physically healthy. The last Adam, Jesus, he was alone, physically weakened when Satan came and tempted him. But the tests were the same. In both situations, they had the instruction from God. They had the words of God. Both were tempted to question what God said. In the first Adam, he gave in to that temptation. He chose not to take God at his word. And because of that, through that mistrust of God, all of creation was corrupted. The entire world is filled with sin because of the first Adam. But the last Adam, Jesus, he did not give in to that temptation. He fought it. He fought it with what he knew to be the word of God. And he believed God instead of testing God. And through that last Adam, Jesus... All of creation is redeemed through all of his sinlessness. And so, now you might wonder, now, okay, that's, that's a pretty clever lens. That's a pretty clever correlation there. Would first century of Christians really have thought of that? Would they really have uh, recognized that and appreciated that? Would they have been able to appreciate the temptation of Jesus in the desert through the lens of Adam being tempted in the garden? Yes, they would have, as a matter of fact. A decade, a decade before the Gospel of Mark circulated in Rome, a different book circulated in Rome amongst Christians. The book of Romans circulated a month before, or I'm sorry, a decade before in Rome. And so Christians were already being taught to think of Jesus through that lens of Adam. And so they definitely, definitely would have picked up on that correlation when thinking about the temptation of Jesus and how it relates to the temptation of Adam because Paul would have already written to them and said things like this, for as by one man's disobedience, 
the many were made sinners. Speaking of Adam, the first Adam. And he continues by saying, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Through the first Adam, his disobedience corrupted and made everyone sinners. Through the last Adam, the second Adam, that is Jesus, through his obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, it brought hope to God's people in a special way. This wasn't something that they, that they latched onto hoping to escape reality. The gospel of Jesus wasn't something that they, that they jumped headlong into hoping to avoid trials and temptations. Rather, the gospel empowered believers in a way that brought them joy and hope amongst their entire community in the midst of chaos and sin. So the obedience of Christ in the face of temptation, that is a central theme in the gospel. Something that we must understand so that we can rejoice. Paul taught that because of the righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the ways in which he did fulfill all righteousness and, and battle temptation with truth, that's cause for us to rejoice no matter what we're going through. In that same chapter in Romans 5 that I read uh, that verse earlier, he, he starts by saying, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, he's Paul had already taught these Christians, hey, listen, you can suffer well when empowered by the Spirit because your Savior suffered perfectly empowered by the Spirit. And that gave them hope to endure. And that's the same hope that you and I are to understand today as we endure through struggles and trials and temptation. We have the hope not to pretend like they don't exist, not to be distracted by them or from them but rather we have this hope of the gospel that so we we can be sustained through them that God provides for us perfectly and that when we get disoriented we can fall back on the truth that is his word that he does love us and he is pleased with us not because of us but because of Jesus his son whom we are in let's pray Father, we thank you so much for the hope of the gospel. We thank you so much for these letters of the New Testament that teach us how to think through the gospel, that teach us how to appreciate just what you've done for us. That, Lord, by your grace, through your truth, we can, we can endure and be sustained. And we know from what your word tells us that you will sustain us by the gospel through to the end. You will complete this work that you are doing in our hearts and minds. That's such a comfort to know that you're going to complete the work uh, of your son in us. Because, Lord, when, when we get caught in those trials and temptations, we, we don't go through them in the same way that Jesus went through them, Lord. We give in to them often. We mess up. We, we decide to test you and not trust you. We fall short of your glory in so many ways. So we're so thankful that we have the truth of the gospel that teaches us that even though we fall short, even though at times we give in to temptation, and even though we, we, we 
give in to uh, suffering in a way that would not bring you glory, Lord. We are justified through the perfection of your son, that he was perfectly sustained. And Lord, that he is our, he is our savior and we are loved by you because of him. Help us to just bask in that truth today, Lord. And I pray for those here that are suffering through a trial this morning, Lord, that they would be reminded of that truth, that they would come back to that truth, and that they would be renewed by that truth today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.